This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. During the last year of his life, Mozart was deep into writing his zingspiel, The Magic Flute, when he suddenly got a commission to write a new opera seria. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, an opera based on the life of the Roman Emperor Titus, La Clemenza di Tito. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Finished in just 18 days, La Clemenza di Tito premiered in 1791. This season, powerhouse mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato sings her world-renowned portrayal of the tortured Sesto for the first time at the Met. She's joined on stage by audience favorite Matthew Polanzani, who adds the title role of Tito to his vast repertoire. I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode, we have my podcast co-host Naomi Baratera in a Guild lecture all about the historical context and musical highlights of this monumental work. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. We know so much about this genius man who gave the world such a wealth of beautiful music. He was born in Salzburg, Austria in 1756 to Anna Maria and Leopold Mozart. We know Mozart was a child prodigy, performing in public by the age of five and composing by the age of six. He also toured with his family, performing for kings and queens and nobles across Europe from about the age of six onward. At the age of 25, he left Salzburg for Vienna, where he longed to get a job as a court opera composer. In Vienna, he fell in love with Constanze Weber, and the two got married, even though Mozart's father was against it in the beginning. We also know a lot about the physical realities of Mozart's world. We know he was pretty short by today's standards, somewhere between 5'2 and 5'4, and we know he had a taste for the finer things in life, like gold embroidery along the trim of his wallet and ivory buttons on his coat. Although the permanent job never came, he was able to carve out a living as a freelance composer. While in Vienna, he writes several operas, three of which are created in collaboration with famed librettist Lorenzo da Ponte. He also became involved with the Freemasons, and we know that several portraits of him dating from this time period were either confirmed to be either painted while he was alive by people who actually saw him, or confirmed by his wife Constanza to be actual likenesses of him in his adult life. 
And right as his career as a freelancer was beginning to gain traction, Mozart fell ill and died suddenly at the age of 35. The opera we're talking about today, La Clemenza di Tito, occupies an important place in Mozart's output because it was the last opera he ever composed. To give us some context for Mozart's musical and personal world at this time, I thought we might take a few moments to relive the timeline of Mozart's final year. The last year of Mozart's life was a very busy one. In 1789 and 1790, money was extremely tight and he needed to find more work. So he went on several trips throughout Germany in an attempt to network and gain a better employment situation. These trips did not lead to any permanent postings, and only a smattering of commissions came of them, which meant that Mozart and Constanza remained stretched rather thin, financially speaking. But 1791 brought some reprieve, as Mozart was able to secure some private patronage, some publishing contracts, and ultimately two new opera projects got underway. After several years of struggling, things were finally starting to look up. We know he completed his last piano concerto, number 27 in B-flat major, K595, shortly after the new year. on to compose a small set of German songs, K596 through 598. From mid-January to the beginning of March, Mozart composed several pieces of dance music for the court, and he completed the Fantasia in F minor for a mechanical organ, K608. That was completed by March 3rd. And then on March 8, he completed a concert aria for bass titled Per Questa Bella Mano, K6112. This piece was written for Franz Evergerl, the bass who had premiered the role of Don Giovanni, Figaro, and would soon premiere the role of Zorastro. Us. 
By April, Mozart had completed what would be his last string quartet in E-flat, K614. By the end of May, he had completed a commission for a glass harmonica piece for Marianne Kirschgesner, a blind glass harmonica player who was performing in Vienna at the time. And by the beginning of June, he completed what would become one of his most popular sacred works, the Ave Virum Corpus. Mozart wrote this piece for his friend, Anton Stoll, who worked at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Baden by Wien, and wanted a new piece for the celebrations on the Feast of Corpus Christi. By mid-July, he had got a commission to write a Requiem Mass. This would become the famous Unfinished Requiem, completed posthumously by his assistant, Franz Zaver Zusmeier, mostly completed in secret so that Constanze could collect the full commission for the work after Mozart's death. Many of you might recognize the famous opening of the Lacrimosa, of which only the first eight bars were composed by Mozart before his death. After getting this requiem commission in July, Mozart got another very prestigious commission. The impresario of the Prague National Theatre, Domenico Guardasoni, asked Mozart to compose an opera for the festivities surrounding the coronation of Leopold II as the new King of Bavaria, all of this following the death of his brother, Joseph II. The coronation was set to take place on September 6th. Not long after this contract was signed, Constanza gave birth to a healthy baby boy on July 26, 
Franz Xaver Wolfgang Mozart. With a newborn and a seven-year-old in the house, Mozart set to work on his new opera commission, dedicating most of August to finishing the score for La Clemenza di Tito. He left Vienna for Prague on August 25th, with the score still not complete, but well on its way. He wrote the last note for Clemenza on September 5th, and then conducted the premiere performance on September 6th during the coronation activities. He returned to Vienna shortly after and gave his full attention to finishing Die Zauberflöte, which he had started before composing La Clemenza di Tito, and which would make its world premiere at the Theater auf der Wieden on September 30, 1791. It was an immense success, unlike anything Mozart had experienced before, and would continue with unabated popularity in Vienna and beyond from the time of its premiere to the present day. In October, despite battling the beginnings of illness, Mozart worked on his clarinet concerto in A major, K622, written for his friend Anton Stadler. Stadler was the clarinet and basset horn player for whom the virtuosic basset horn parts in La Clemenza di Tito were originally written. As October moved into November, Mozart's health deteriorated and his pace of composing slowed. He finished his little Masonic cantata, K623, and by November 20th, he was too ill to even leave his bed. He died on December 5th, 1791, shortly after midnight, of causes that are still unknown. Although theories of poison have been discredited, we know that he suffered for months, and from at least the time that he returned to Vienna after La Clemenza di Tito, and we know that he experienced a great deal of pain in his final days. The two operas that Mozart worked on in the last year of his life could not have been any more different from one another. We know he began working on Die Zauberflöte first, a German Zingspiel, with little to no evidence suggesting when the decision to pursue this work came about. German Zingspiel was a light-hearted form of entertainment featuring spoken dialogue interspersed with musical numbers. It was entertainment for the populace, for the common man, and Mozart's Zingspiel was the ultimate blend of humor and beauty with themes both simplistic and profound. <laughs>
Unlike some of his other operas, this was not a commissioned piece, but we know he was working on it by July 1791. While in the middle of composing Die Zauberflöte, Mozart got the commission for what would be his last full opera, La Clemenza di Tito, an opera seria hearkening back to operatic trends that had reached their peak in popularity while Mozart was around 10 years old. So why revert back to what certainly would have been viewed as an archaic style at the time? Simply put, the new king loved opera seria and wanted that specific genre for the coronation festivities. But Mozart, in his own writing, is very clear that despite the archaic stylistic framework requested of him, he believed that he had created something that was a vera opera, a true opera, something that was dramatically effective and compelling. So what is an opera seria? Opera seria was the noble and serious style of Italian opera that predominated in Europe from about the 1710s to 1770. The popular rival to opera seria was opera buffa, the comic opera that took its cue from the improvisatory style of Commedia dell'arte. And there are several discernible elements of opera seria. First, it was commonly performed in royal courts or venues frequented by the nobility and aristocracy. Opera serias almost always follow a number structure of recitatives and arias interspersed by the occasional duet or ensemble. There were usually an average of 30 or more numbers throughout the opera, and those numbers made heavy use of the Baroque da capo aria form, A-B-A form, or the rondo aria, A-B-A-C-A-D, and so on. Arias usually ended with a singer's exit, allowing for applause and the throwing of flowers, and the final act always ended with a celebratory chorus. The stories were often based on tales from antiquity with serious dramatic themes, and the cast of singers often included castrati and pantsrolls. Now, there are several operatic terms within this list that I just read, so let's break it down a little bit further. First, let's talk about recitative. The kind of recitative or speech-like singing that we find in Clemenza is recitative seco, which translates to dry speech-like singing. The dry character is achieved by very sparse orchestral accompaniment. In opera seria, recitative is typically when the plot moves forward or important conversations between characters occur. In contrast to this, arias are when characters reflect upon their situation and share their emotions. 
Recitative was often accompanied by what we call the continuo, usually a cello or bass instrument of some kind from the string section, and some kind of stringed instrument that could play chords, such as a harpsichord, or earlier in opera in the Baroque period, oftentimes a lute. In the score, there is only a single note written in the continuo part, and this is because players would know, based on that particular note, what harmonies Mozart wanted to accompany that particular moment. So when you listen to recitative seco, especially in La Clemenza di Tito, the continuo players, probably a harpsichord player and a cello, will have to quote-unquote realize the continuo part. So you will hear the continuo players, probably the harpsichord, playing full chords and playing different rhythms underneath the singers, even though what's in the score is just a single note. This is a big part of the performance practice of the time and part of the artistry of playing opera seria. The other important element of opera seria that we need to discuss is that of pants rolls and the castrati rolls. In opera, a pants roll refers to a character that is male, but that is performed by a female soprano or mezzo-soprano. Now, why might a pants roll exist? Sometimes, composers deliberately composed male roles to be sung by females because they believed the female voice could better capture and express the emotional journey of the character. An example of this is the role of Carabino in Le Nozze di Figaro. Carabino is an adolescent boy, and Mozart felt that a tenor, baritone, or bass baritone voice didn't quite capture the youthful essence that he was after. So he deliberately wrote the role to be a male character performed by a female mezzo-soprano. But sometimes roles we consider pants roles today were originally written not for a female singer, but for a special type of male singer called a castrato, or pluralized in Italian, the castrati. A castrato was a male singer trained in the classical style with a pitch range equivalent to that of a soprano, mezzo-soprano, or contralto female. The voice is produced, or exists, because of castration of the singer before puberty. Castrati were common in Italy and other parts of Europe throughout the 16 and 1700s, and even into the 1800s. Because the Pope had decreed that women must stay silent in the church, females were not allowed to sing in church during this time period. So there were places for a good castrato to have a job in papal choirs. And although scholars think that the commonplace of castrati in Italy predates opera, once opera becomes popularized as a form of public entertainment, the castrati not only find opportunities for employment in the church, but now the opera industry, and they become the superstars of the opera stage. I know you probably have a lot of questions about this, and it is a fascinating subject, so allow me a few moments to answer some questions you might be too afraid to ask. How exactly this practice of castrating young boys in order to preserve the prepubescent vocal range, how it came about, is a little bit unclear. But we have records of the practice in the time of the Byzantine Empire. Then it falls off the radar for a little while and reemerges in the mid-1500s in Italy. So by the time opera is invented as an art form in the early 1600s, doctors had, by this time, figured out that castration somewhere between the ages of 7 and 12 prevented a boy's larynx from being transformed by the normal physiological events of puberty. 
As a result, the vocal range of prepubescent boys, which is shared actually between both sexes, boys and girls as children have the same pitch range, that pitch range is largely retained and the voice develops into adulthood in a very unique way. We know that by the end of the 18th century, it was socially frowned upon to deliberately castrate boys for the purpose of singing, and it was actually made illegal in the Papal States, which was the last area to legally prohibit the practice in 1870. Why would families allow this to happen to their children? The answer really was the prospect of good employment. There were lots of church jobs for a decent singer, and the very best would become superstars on the opera stage. And why did audiences love the castrati so much? Social perceptions of a masculine-sounding voice were obviously different then than they are now. And there is a whole other lecture to be had, a whole other podcast episode, about social perceptions of masculinity and the castrato voice. But for now, suffice it to say that audiences at the time didn't find the high pitch of this masculine voice off-putting, they found it thrilling. Because the castrati developed differently than other men due to the different hormone balances that they experienced, they were incredibly tall, had huge lung capacities, and very, very thin vocal cords, which meant that they could hold notes longer than anybody else, and because they could do this, they could create incredibly virtuosic ornamentation. We don't know exactly what the castrato sounded like in terms of timbre because we don't have recordings from the time period but written accounts suggest that the timbre was incredibly pure, it had a ringing power to it, and it was very flexible and nimble, and also very pleasing to the ear. We know it was different than a soprano timbre, and we know it was different than a countertenor timbre, and we know that because of the way in which the sound is produced, it's biologically different between countertenors and castrati. Countertenors, who we can actually see performing in opera quite frequently today, use the outer, thinner membrane or ligament of their vocal cords to make a particular type of high-pitched sound. When only the outer, thinner membrane vibrates, this activates the falsetto, and countertenors train their falsetto to sustain a powerful sound. But with castrati, the whole vocal cord would vibrate, which meant that the types of sound they could create, the quality of the sound itself, was different, even if the pitch range between the countertenor and the castrato were generally the same. And yes, the answer to a question you might be afraid to ask, castrati could be sexually active, depending on when the procedure had been done and how their body reacted to it. In fact, historical documentation suggests that castrati were extremely popular as lovers for women of the aristocracy because there was no risk of getting pregnant. But for now, let's get back to opera seria. When opera seria was in its heyday, castrati were also the superstars of the opera stage. So when Mozart wrote La Clemenza di Tinto, he wrote the part of Sesto deliberately to be a castrato role. But he also deliberately created a pants role, the role of Anio, deliberately crafted as a male character to be sung by a female mezzo-soprano. So as we begin diving into the plot and hearing some of the musical highlights, keep in mind that oftentimes you're going to hear two female singers, but one of which is dressed or performing the role of a male character. Sesto, which was originally a castrato role, now often sung by a mezzo-soprano female, and Anio, a male character devised from the get-go as a mezzo-soprano pants role. When the curtain rises, we meet Vitalia, daughter of the late emperor Vitalio. 
And an important piece of family history to understand is that Vitalia was deposed by Tito's father, so Vitalia, his daughter, has lived with a desire for revenge for as long as she can remember. Tito is now the current emperor of Rome, and much of the opera plot is set into motion because of Vitalia's desire to enact her revenge against him, but also her simultaneous desire for him, or at least jealousy toward any other woman who might become his empress. And this is how we meet Sesto. Sesto is Tito's best friend, but he also happens to be in love with Vitalia. Vitalia knows that Sesto is obsessed with her, and she uses this to try and convince Sesto to become involved in her plan of revenge, and they sing a duet all about how this is going to happen. Then Vitalia gets some interesting news. She hears through the grapevine that Tito has sent Berenice of Cecilia back to Jerusalem. Berenice was Tito's current love interest, and Vitalia, being the complicated person that she is, was extremely jealous of Berenice. So Vitalia tells Sesto to press pause on the revenge plans against Tito, hoping that Tito will choose her as his new empress. Meanwhile, Tito already has his eyes on a new woman to be his empress, but it's not Vitalia. It is actually Sesto's sister, Servia. Tito orders his friend Anio to bring a message to Servia, telling her that she has been chosen as Tito's bride. But what Tito doesn't know is that Anio and Servia are in love, so this is extremely difficult news for Anio to deliver. This leads to what I think is the most beautiful duet in the opera, A Perdono. We're going to watch both the duet and the recitative that leads into it, so you can get a sense of that dry recitative style.
Servia decides to tell Tito the truth, and she says that she will ultimately follow the will of the emperor, even if it means that she must give up her love, Anio. When Servia goes to tell Tito, he is touched by her honesty and says that he promises he will not come between her and Anio. While that conversation is happening, Vitalia hears about Tito's interest in Servia and is again furious. In a fit of jealousy, she tells Sesto to assassinate Tito. He agrees, and even though he is obviously conflicted between his allegiance to the emperor and his best friend, and his love for Vitalia, this leads into the opera's most famous aria, Parto Parto, Matu Ben Mio, for which Mozart wrote a very virtuosic part for the basset horn. The basset horn is like an early version of a clarinet and one of Mozart's friends, Anton Stadler, was contracted to play in the orchestra for Clemenza, so Mozart wrote this particular aria with a part for the basset horn, knowing the skills and ability of his friend. As we listen to the aria, listen for that basset horn part that is paired with the singer in an extremely virtuosic way.
As soon as Sesto leaves, Anio and the guard Publio arrive and they inform Vitalia that she has been chosen as Tito's next empress. And Vitalia is beginning to feel guilty, knowing that her reason for dispatching Sesto just moments ago to assassinate Tito is now moot. But she says nothing to Anio and Publio and leaves with them. Meanwhile, Sesto is ready to carry out his plan, but is wrestling with his conscience. In the end, his love for Vitalia prevails, and he and his accomplices leave to burn everything to the ground. As the capital is set ablaze, everybody gathers, and they are horrified by the fire they see growing in the distance. Tito is not among the group, and Sesto enters and announces that he saw Tito slain. But Vitalia, in the nick of time, stops him from incriminating himself in this news. The act ends with the crowd lamenting the loss of the emperor in a slow, mournful lament. opens, we learn that Emperor Tito is actually not dead, but alive. Anio tells this to Sesto, and we learn through their conversation that in the chaos of the fire, the person who Sesto thought he assassinated was not actually Tito. And furthermore, the person that Sesto thought he assassinated isn't actually dead either. He survived. Sesto tells Anio that his only option at this point is to leave Rome, but Anio convinces him to stay. Sesto is then arrested for conspiracy against the emperor and tried before the senate. Tito is saddened that his friend, his best friend, has betrayed him, but hopeful that the senate will not condemn him to death. Anio goes to Tito on his own and begs the emperor to show mercy towards his friend, mainly because Sesto is the brother of his beloved Servia. (laughs) 
Then the verdict is announced. Sesto has been found guilty and Tito must sign his death sentence. Tito demands that Sesto be sent to him so he can explain himself. And we can tell that he is hopeful that Sesto will reveal some reason why everything was just a big misunderstanding. But Sesto takes all the blame. He does not mention Vitalia at all and gives Tito no way to get him out of the situation. Tito sends him away and alone on stage, he tears up the death warrant and says that if the world wishes him to accuse him, Tito, of being anything, it should charge him with showing too much mercy rather than having a vengeful heart. By this time, Vitalia's feelings of guilt are starting to eat at her. Just before Tito can publicly announce his decision, Vitalia publicly confesses her part in the plan and acknowledges that this revelation has probably cost her her place as Tito's next empress. Tito, of course, is shocked, but decides that Vitalia is also worthy of mercy. He offers forgiveness and clemency to both Vitalia and Sesto, and the opera ends with all the subjects praising the extreme generosity of the emperor.
This opera is a beautiful piece of history in more than one way. Not only is it one of the final operatic compositions from its composer, the production on stage at the Met this season is a piece of history as well, designed and directed by Jean-Pierre Ponel. It is a very traditional production, with grandiose sets and elaborate historical costumes, but designs constructed in such a way that the singers and characters have freedom to express their stories in a compelling manner. And the cast you are going to see, if you can catch it on stage this season, is absolutely phenomenal. Mezzo-soprano Joyce Di Donato is singing Sesto, tenor Matthew Polanzani adds yet another role to his extensive Mozartine repertoire as Emperor Tito, Elsa Vandenhever sings Vitalia, and Ying Fang, Emily D'Angelo, and Christian Van Horn complete the principal cast, all under the baton of Lothar Kunigs. To end, I thought I would share a wonderful review of the season premiere performance that happened just a week or so ago, written by James Jordan in The Observer. Jordan writes, Even when a reviewer plans ahead, as we should anyway, a season sometimes offers as many splendid surprises as a casual wander through a museum. Turn a corner at the Museum of Modern Art, and hey, isn't that Van Gogh's Starry Night? Or you show up on a Saturday evening for an unheralded Mozart revival at the Met and discover one of the season's most precious jewels. Not only is Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito even starrier than the Van Gogh canvas, all six leading roles are stunningly well cast, but it serves as a timely reminder of a couple of rock-bottom basic tenets of opera as theatre. First, the production by the late Jean-Pierre Ponel transforms the elegant tale of a high-minded Roman emperor into gripping, imaginative drama without in any way trivializing or distorting the text and music. And beyond that, the Met has revived the staging, first performed here 34 years ago, with skill and imagination. The blocking is precise, and the performers have found a happy unanimity in their style of movement, which, as Ponel devised it, forms a sort of ironic commentary on the grand manner of classical tragedy. As a magnanimous Roman Emperor Tito prepares for a state marriage, the scheming Princess Vitalia, thinking she has been snubbed, cajoles Sesto, her lover and Tito's closest friend, into a murder plot. The most compelling aspect of the drama, though, is Tito's Hamlet-like indecision on whether to punish the guilty parties. Just as the artists embody larger-than-life characters physically, so they all sang this demanding and sophisticated score with virtuosic transport. Most brilliant of all was Mezzo Joyce Di Donato as the anguished Sesto. She daringly imposed vast contrasts of volume and tempo upon the most famous aria from this score, Parto Parto, transitioning from an almost murmured slow section to a quick silver conclusion. The elaborate triplet melismas were not only crystal clear but achingly expressive of the character's overwrought emotional state. Soprano Elza Vandenhever might have lacked a little of Di Donato's instrumental precision, but she more than compensated with her aggressive, appropriately, scenery-chewing attack on the role of Vitalia. She was not so much a villainess as a weapons-grade drama queen, as ferociously stagey as, say, Faye Dunaway might have been in The Favourite. She hurled out both recitative and coloratura vigorously, and even managed to indicate the sepulchral notes of her 11 o'clock number, Non più di fiori, though she lacks an ideally firm chest voice. 
The strong casting included several featured roles, Emily D'Angelo as Anio and Christian Van Horn as Publio, both boasting lavish, fresh voices, and soprano Ying Fang's silvery tone and exquisite stage presence were simply perfect for the ingenue Servia. In the title role of Merciful Tito, tenor Matthew Polanzani wedded ravishing Italianate tone to exemplary bel canto technique. Declamation, legato, and even the fiendish scales in Se Alimpero all sounded scrupulous yet spontaneous. Mozart really viewed this opera as a truly dramatic work, and one filled with feeling. And while the subject matter was clearly chosen to cast a benevolent light on a new ruler, I think the message is still very meaningful today. It is said that with great power comes great responsibility, and Tito's final line of the opera shows that he wished his power to be used for fostering goodness in his realm. I hope Jordan's descriptions or our exploration of the opera together in this episode inspire you to see the opera performed live, catch it on the radio, or revisit an old recording and experience the opera with fresh ears. That was my co-host Naomi Baratera guiding us through Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito. To keep up with all things opera, be sure to follow The Metropolitan Opera, The Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.